Uh, before we do, I just want to make some clarifications, I guess, from last week. So if you were here, uh, you may have noticed that I got a little louder and a little more passionate um, than I ever probably have in my whole life preaching. Um, and there's a couple of things I want to say. Uh, number one, I'm very, very grateful that the Lord has given me this passion for the Bible. I'm like, it kind of trumps most other things, most other passions. And so um, last week, what I, when I got sort of worked up a little bit, um, it was in, the, in the, the vein of thinking about and wanting to, to really strongly rebuke um, any of us, myself included, no matter where you stand on any theological issue, that it is extremely important. And I think this is what this church um, needs to be united on, is that we hold the Bible as our ultimate authority. So there are churches in this town that very unapologetically don't do that. Um, they, they teach the prosperity gospel. They teach health and wealth. If you just have enough faith, God will heal you. Like, this is contrary to Scripture. And so, I, I don't know this to be true, but in my, like, as I look around and as I visited other churches in Bayfield, um, it's my understanding, and at least my impression, that First Baptist is one of the, if not the only church in town who strongly, adamantly stands on Scripture. So last week, the rebuke and the, the loudness and the, the sort of getting worked up was not against, it, it was unfortunate that that happened in the midst of that discussion on predestination. My rebuke was not if you disagree with that. I, I do not care if you agree with that or not. I'm gonna, I have a conviction and when I see it in scripture, like I'm gonna teach from my conviction. But if you disagree, that is 100% and totally okay with me. As long as the things that you believe are rooted and grounded in Scripture. And so I even made a statement. It was brought to my attention very helpfully. Um, I had a good conversation this week. And I was very thankful because I didn't even remember saying this, but I know I did. I, it was, anyway, that I said, don't come to me if you like, don't have Scripture to back up what you were saying. And I want to qualify that statement or clarify it because what I, what I don't want is for you to be like, well, there's ideas in the Bible and I don't know what I believe about them and I don't have Scripture to back that up. So I guess he's saying I can't come and talk to him. Um, that's, not, that's not what I want. That was not my heart behind that statement. Um, what I'm hoping, what I'm challenging you guys with, is that if I say something on a Sunday morning and you think that doesn't sound right, I want to go and talk to him and I don't think that that was right. I 100% welcome it. I want you to come. I want to have those discussions. I had a few this week and it was wonderful and it was glorious and we got to talk about the Bible. And so those things are great. The thing that I was rebuking or that I'm pushing hard against is the idea that you would say, I disagree with you, and I don't have scripture to back that up, but I'm going to come and, and tell you why you're wrong anyway. If you, if you want to come and we can talk about those things, that's wonderful. But I'm just I'm challenging you, encouraging you that, to have scripture to back that up. Now, that's different than saying, well, you said something on Sunday, and I've been told my whole life something very different than that. Um, and I don't, now I don't know what I believe. I don't have any scripture to back up the thing I believe. I was just told that all my life, and now, I don't, now I'm in a tizzy here. I don't understand what to do. Can we look at the Bible together? That's, that's also great, right? The, 
All I'm, uh, my, my encouragement, my challenge for the church as a whole is that everything we believe, we should, we should always want and be striving to have Scripture as the basis. Now, I'm telling you, there are things that I don't, like, that you, you would, if you would ask me about, you know, the end of the world, the eschatology, would, like, I don't know. Like, I might tell you very loosely, like, well, I sort of fall into this camp. But, like, I haven't done a lot of scriptural study. And it's come up a lot, right, with Israel and whatever's happening over there. And so I'm not saying that every single theological idea I have scriptural basis to prove it all. Like, we're all on a journey. We're all trying to figure these things out. And we're all reading our Bible and we're all trying to learn. And we can do that together. And so we should be united under that front. That idea that we all hold the Bible to be the ultimate authority. When we form our ideas about who God is and what's going on in our world and, and, and our ideas about different theological ideas, those all, we just, our goal and our, our mission as the church is to root ourselves in the Bible. And so that is what I was trying to, but, but I know that I got really excited and I got worked up and I got kind of loud and I said things that I don't even remember saying. I think the the Spirit was speaking through me, but I wasn't doing my part to speak it clearly. So I just wanted to make sure that what I said last week, you understand that I am not rebuking different ideas or, or anybody who might disagree with, with certain theological ideas. I think we all can, can walk the path together. If we are believing in Jesus, if we love him and we know that he is our Savior, we are a church united. right? And so... With that being said, hopefully that clears up if, there were, if you had any questions. If you have further questions about, you know, last week or what went on, please, uh, I'm, I'm always available to talk and, and we can talk through those things. Okay, so that's out of the way. Let's look at um, chapter 8, starting in verse 31. <coughs> so, when I was reading and studying this this week, I, I, I saw a theme show up sort of over and over again in all of these statements. And it really goes back to what Ed said during you know, our prayer time. Like, there's a lot of promises from God in this, in this chapter, in these verses especially. But the, the real, it, it's not that we read these things and we say, I don't really believe that's true. I think we all read it and we believe, yes, this is, this is true. This is what God is doing. But the problem is, like, we, we don't live as if we believe it. Like, we, we read it and we intellectually, like, we know that God has promised us these things. But then we struggle applying them. We struggle living our everyday life with all of these promises that God has made to us. And so, <clears throat> there's two things I think that, um, that I want us to see. Number one is that God is doing all of these things. All these, all these statements, all the verses we're going to look at, it's God doing stuff on our behalf. For us to be blessed, for us to be in a better state, and then secondly, that we struggle with them, and when we struggle with them, we should ask for deeper faith to believe them. So, let's look at this first statement. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? So God is the one who is standing up on our behalf, and Paul is asking a rhetorical question, right? He, he knows, or we should know the answer to that. If he is for us, then who can possibly be against us? Well, I mean, who's the, was it? Nobody, right? Nobody can stand against us if God is standing for us. So all these things that we have learned, there's this unbroken chain of God's foreknowledge to our glorification, that we can withstand all sufferings, and even in our weakness and prayers, God hears us, God has saved us, 
And there is absolutely nothing that can stand against him. And by default, because he is standing with us, nothing can stand against us either. It's like being a child and your dad steps in. So we, we have these chickens, right? We're trying to figure this out, you know. Unfortunately, we've lost a few to the cold. And we lost a rooster um, to my 22 because all he did was attack my children. Just like all the time. All day long, he's just after the kids. He's pecking at them and he's getting them. And the kids are just, like, after a while, you know, I was trying to hold off. And, I'm, and they're like, but they're begging me, like, every day. Dad. Get rid of the rooster. And they're crying and, he's, and they're trying to play. And then here he comes around the corner crowing all day long. And so finally, what does dad do? I step in between, right? And even in, the, even in the times before we put him out of his, you know, whatever, his misery and our misery. Like, when the kids are scared, what is happening? Dad steps in and he steps in between. And there's the protection. And all of a sudden, if I were to go outside and step in between the rooster and the kids... Not only do the kids then feel safe, but the rooster, he didn't come after me. He turned around and run the other way, right? This is a very weak example, right? I'm not trying to put myself in the shoes of God, but like it's a weak example, but we see the point, right? When we are faced with all of the struggles of this world, sometimes we feel alone. Sometimes we feel abandoned in that, and we have to remember this is a true promise of God, that he is standing with us. If he is standing with us, nobody, nobody can stand against us. So no matter what you're facing, it doesn't matter how hard it is, God is standing there with you. Now, there is a big issue here, and you, as my, one of my favorite preachers, he always says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. And here it is. God doesn't fight for us the way we want him to. You see, when you're struggling with finances, what we all want is for a magic check to show up in the mail for the amount that covers all of the bills. That's how we want God to stand up for us. When we get sick, we want God to bring miraculous healing. That's the way we want God to stand up for us, and he often doesn't do it that way. And then... Instead of us saying, well, I still believe it. I still believe that God is standing for me. I don't see it. I don't understand the way in which he is standing. I don't, I don't feel it, but I know it's true. That should be our response. But oftentimes we say, God, it doesn't feel like you're standing up for me, so you must not be standing up for me. That's where we allow our minds to go. We struggle with this. Because when God doesn't stand up for us in the way in which we wish, when he doesn't meet the need as fast as we want him to, or in the way we want him to, we think, he must have forgotten me. He must have abandoned me. I am as guilty as anybody in this room of thinking that way. Every time something happens and God doesn't act as quickly as I want him to, that temptation is there. That's being whispered into my brain by the devil or what my own flesh. I don't know. There is, there is the temptation to believe that God is not doing his part because he's not doing it the way I want him to or the way I expect him to. But this promise is still true. God is standing with you. No matter what, all of the time, even when it doesn't feel like he is. That may mean 
that you suffer through financial burden for years. That may mean that an illness sticks with you for months or years, or that may even be the thing that ends your life. It doesn't mean that God is not standing with you. God decides how long we suffer. God decides how long the hardship will last. It's not up to us. Secondly, God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. It's verse 32. So once again, we have something that God has done for us, right? We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. Out of God's kindness and his gracious love for his creation, he gives up his own son to come to earth. Now, this is not like a universalist statement, right? This whole idea that he gave him up for us all, we're going to see that the, that. The all in this is the audience in which Paul is speaking to, which is the church in Rome. And we see more evidence of that as we look further into that verse, because he also says that he gives all of the blessings, right, to all. So he is speaking to the people who have believed in him. This is not speaking to the whole world. This is not a universalist idea. He doesn't give all things to everyone. He gives all things to his people, right? This is what the second part of that verse says. How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? So the us is the audience, right? It's the church in Rome. And so Paul is saying that God has given up his son so that everyone who believes in him, everyone who repents, everyone who bows their knee and has faith in Christ will believe in him, right? And they will be saved. This is something that God has done for us. We have done nothing to earn it. We have done nothing to deserve it. And it ties back to the first statement. If you don't feel like God is standing up for you, remind yourself of the things that he has already done. Yeah, you may not be able to see him physically standing by your side in the midst of a trial, but the thing you know is true is that Christ has come. If he is willing to send his own son, and you know that his son was willing to go to the cross, undeserving, to die for our sins, for his body to be broken and his blood to be shed, so that you and I can be saved, how much more is he going to stand up for us in the small stuff that we are suffering on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis? Next thing is that he graciously gives us all things. So once again, this word all is not literal here. I mean, does God give you all things in a literal sense? Just try praying for a sports car and see if it happens, right? It does. I mean, maybe. Sometimes it happens. It's never happened for me. When I was a kid, my dad and I, we, like when I was 13, I think he didn't think I was going to stick with it, but he, he, when I was 13, he bought me a 1967 Camaro, right? It was just the, the body and the drivetrain, if you know anything about cars, right? And so he said, look, son, if you will build this car with me when you're 16, I'll give it to you. And I did. And even as a 13-year-old, every time he went out there and opened the socket or opened the toolbox, I was by his side. And he reluctantly, at 16, gave me the keys 
to a V8 big block engine car. I mean, I don't know what he was thinking, right? But they did it. He, he was true to his word, and he gave me that car, right? And he, he helped me build it, and I had to, when we moved up here, I ended up selling it. And ever since, I've been wanting one again. Ever, I look around, and I'm like, ooh, maybe that one. And they're always, and they're so expensive, right? And I ask the Lord, and he's never given me another one. And he may never give me another one, and that's okay, right? When God says that he gives us all things, he's not talking about classic cars or bigger houses or all. He's talking about all of the blessings that he has promised to us. Now, we don't even have to get outside of chapter 8 to see a huge list of these things. It's far too much to expound upon here. But let's just, let's just look at just a few of the things that he promises just in chapter 8. We are no longer condemned. We are set free, that we walk in the Spirit, that we have Christ in us, that we have life and not death, that we are sons of God, that we are delivered from our sufferings, that we have the Spirit to help us pray, that we have been predestined, called, justified, and glorified. When Paul says that God is giving us all things, these are the things that he's talking about. He's giving us all of the tools by which to be sanctified. He's giving us all of the tools by which to follow after him more closely. He's giving us all of these spiritual blessings that we can use on an everyday basis. He is not promising health and wealth, a bigger bank account, that you will never get sick, and that if you do get sick, you just need enough faith to pray it away. That is not the things. Those are not the things that God is saying and promising to us. In fact, the opposite is true. He promises that we will struggle. He promises that we will have suffering. But in the midst of all of that, God is there with us. He is standing beside us. And as he said earlier in chapter 8, when we look at those sufferings, it helps us to have a, 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 a lesser grasp on this world. You see, if you were a multi-millionaire and you had all of the things that you want, it might be a little harder to let go of all of that. But if your life has been defined by suffering and by, and by struggles and by hardship, but that you still have faith in God and you're still loving Him, the desire to leave this place and go be with Him is greater. It helps us to face something that probably all of us, to some degree, fear, which is death. One day, it will come for every single one of us. And God is telling us, He is standing there beside us. He is giving us all of the things that we need in order to stand strong in our faith. The next thing he says is that nobody can bring a charge against us. Once again, it's an amazing truth, but it's hard. It's hard to live this out. It's hard to believe this. It's hard to really take hold of this. Because part of the human condition is that we don't want people to be able to bring a charge against us. Right? We want others outside of our, of our sphere of, of influence, of the church, to think highly of us. And to some degree, that's good. I mean, if you've reread recently, and I challenge you to do this, right, before next week, before we're going we're gonna to sort of sit down with the elder candidates again and talk to them, go back and read the qualifications for what an elder needs to be. One of those qualifications is to be well thought of by outsiders. So God is not saying to us we should not care what anybody thinks about us at all. 
It's important that we're well-respected within our community, but there is coming a day, quite possibly in my lifetime, and almost a guarantee in my children's lifetime, that if we stand on the Bible, if we stand on the truth that men are men and can't become women, right, that homosexuality is sin, that Christianity is the only true religion, that men should be leading their households, all of these very unpopular beliefs that our Bible is very clear about, when we stand on those, the world will hate us. They don't like that kind of language. There may come a day when you face prison time because you are standing on the word of God. Because your faith in Christ compels you to preach the gospel. Compels you to tell people there is a certain way in which God has commanded us to live. And anything outside of that is sin. You may see the inside of a jail cell for that. But this promise is still true. Nobody can bring a charge against you. You might get thrown in jail, but you are still justified. It doesn't matter what man's law, it doesn't, it, those things are not what brings about judgment. God looks at you when you believe in Christ, when you have faith in him. He declares you justified. You are no longer condemned. So no matter what our government may end up doing to us one day, Right now, we're still safe, but I, I, I do. I mean, I've been con I am convinced of this. It is quite possible that we will see the inside of a jail for just believing in the basic tenets of Christianity because the world hates it. And I don't care. If that's my fate, so be it. I will not stand condemned because Christ, God, has declared us justified. And that justification, it comes through the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul reminds us of this, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. <coughs> me, who indeed intercedes for us. This justification comes as a product of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's good to be reminded. It's good to be reminded that it's not based off of you and me. And my effort, right? My justification, the life that I have is not based on did I wake up today and do all of the things right and avoid to do all of the sin that I, that I so desperately, my, my flesh, is wanting me to do. It's not based on that. It's based on Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. Our salvation is secure in the hands of God. If it were up to us, we would lose it, right? We couldn't sustain it. We could not maintain it. But because it is up to God, it is up to the work of Christ, it is maintained. When we have faith in God, we are in his family. We are a part of that, and nothing can separate us from it. Now, it's also interesting that Paul says, Jesus is the one who is interceding for us. If you were here last week and you have somewhat of a memory intact, right? We, we saw Paul say that the Spirit was interceding for us. Now, once it's true, right? Our, our God is three and one. And so when one, it's not that there are tasks 
that are exclusively for the Holy Spirit and exclusively for the Son and exclusively for the Father. But it is important that Paul mentions that Christ is interceding. And earlier in the chapter, he mentions that the Spirit is interceding. There is a point there. There is something to be learned by this. We talked about the Spirit interceding for us when we don't know how to pray. He says, when we pray as... In a way that we ought not to pray, the Spirit intercedes, right? Whether that be we don't know what to say or whether we go to God and we forget to, you know, to, to bring Him glory or we, whatever, right? The Spirit is interceding for us. In this case, Jesus is interceding for us in a different way. So just, just imagine the scene, right? The, fa- the Father is sitting on His throne in heaven and you just imagine yourself trying to approach Him under your own merit. It's not going to go very well for us, right? You're going to go before God the Father and say, I'm going to present to him all of the good deeds that I have done, and he will accept me for who I am and the things that I have done. That's, that's a, a recipe for failure. You will be rejected, right? Nothing you have ever done, nothing I have ever done has merited an audience with God the Father. But, when we do that, you go before the Father, and instead of your own merits, Jesus, who is sitting at his right hand, stands up and intercedes for you. Right? Just like that bad analogy from earlier, right? There's danger there between you and the Father because of your sin. There's danger between me and the Father because of my sin. There's a disunity there unless... Jesus stands up, intercedes for us, and says, Father, my blood has washed this one clean. His sins are forgiven. He is justified. He is called my brother or sister in Christ because he has believed on me. Jesus stands up and intercedes for us. The conflict is gone. The danger is gone because we are in the family of God, through the work of Christ, we have been justified. We are a part of that family. And so Jesus intercedes on our behalf. We are not worthy, we are not capable of approaching the Father, but He is, and He allows us to go. There's just a few more things. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. These are all the promises that Paul is is sort of listing out for us. One after another after another. The next one is that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Now Paul poses this as a question of sorts. And then he quotes from Psalm 44. Now this is really important that we understand what Psalm 44 says. We need to go and read it, I think, in its entirety together. To understand what's happening here. Flip with me. Psalm 44. Oh God, we have heard with our ears and our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days and the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations. But them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. 
For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, and you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and you have put to shame those who hate us. And God, we have boasted continually, and we give thanks to your name forever. Now that all sounds good, right? He's remembering what God has done for Jacob. He is not trusting in his own sake, right, in his own weapons. And he is saying, look, we are trusting in you, God, alone. But it takes a turn here in verse 9. But you have rejected us, and you have disgraced us, and have not gone out with your armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and you have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of your neighbors, of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and my shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. That's important. Let me read that again. All of this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be led to the slaughter. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now that kind of treatment we expect to read when Israel has turned their back on the covenant. Oftentimes, we read it that way. Israel has gone after Baal, and then God punishes them. But what does the psalmist say? They didn't turn their back on the covenant, at least not in this moment. They were being faithful and steadfast to God. They had not reached out to foreign gods. And yet, verse 22 is happening. That Paul quotes here, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, here is a problem that we have in Christianity. We equate death and suffering and uncomfortableness with being separated from God. In that psalm, they are still praising his name. They are being faithful to him and they are being ridiculed, laughed at, derived. All of the people around them are winning all of the battles. And the people of Israel are being led to the slaughter. Why? Because that does not equate the love of God. 
God loves us and we suffer. These two things are not mutually exclusive. They are happening at the same time, all of the time. We are always struggling with something. We are always suffering through something. And we are tempted to look at those times and say, God must not love me. God, there, something is separating God from me because these hard things are happening in my life. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think of God as a doting father who gives you everything that you want? And if the answer is yes, you are not serving the God of the Bible. That is not how he operates. He blesses us with many, many things, right? The fact that we're all here this morning and that we made a choice about what we were going to wear and we made a choice about the food that we were going to eat this morning, meaning that we had more than just rice and beans and more than just one shirt and one pair of pants. The Lord has blessed us, right? You woke up with a heater going. You woke up under a roof and not out in the snow. These are all blessings that God has given to you. But if you think that God owes you those things, if you think that if God decides he's going to take away all of that from you, that he must not love you anymore, you don't know the God of the Bible. God puts us through trial and tribulation and suffering all of the time. So give thanks for the many things that God has blessed you with. But don't equate tribulation and suffering with a lack of love from God. He was leading Israel like lamb to the slaughter. Why? Because death is not the ultimate evil. In fact... If we're honest with ourselves, we're not seeking it, but we welcome it. Amen? I mean, what does death mean? That we pass from this life into the next with perfect communion with God. That we spend every waking moment in His presence. Don't think of death, don't think of suffering as a removal of God's love from your life. And the last thing I want to say is, Paul says that in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Now about you, I struggle with just the conquering part, right? It's hard enough to just conquer the things that we read in verse 35, right? Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. It's hard enough when I'm faced with any of those things to feel like I conquered it. Like, yes. I am facing this thing, but my faith has not been weakened. Thank you, Lord, that I, get, that I was able to conquer that. Thank you, Lord, that I was able to conquer all of the struggles that you have put in front of me. But Paul says we are more than that. We don't just conquer it. We don't just stare these things in the face and say, you know what? Death is at my doorstep, but my faith is strong. I beat it, right? I conquered it. We are more than that. Now, he doesn't expound upon that, right? So we have to go into a little bit of speculation. Like, what exactly does he mean that we are more than this? How often in the face of your trial or tribulation are you content with saying, well, I didn't curse God and die today, as Job's wife, you know, would recommend. I made it through. I still said my prayers. I still, said the, I still read the Bible. I'm still putting my faith in Christ. 
even in the midst of these tribulations, tribulations, at least I've conquered them today. You see, I think Paul is telling us that there's a step beyond even that. If you've ever read those, the book of martyrs, right? If you read through some of the Old Testament, if you, if you read and understand the early church, there weren't people who were being killed and martyred for the name of Jesus and be like, well, I guess... I guess I'll endure this. Lord, please give me some kind of strength. I'm, I'll really try. They were seeking it out. They were praising God's name in the midst of it. They were thanking God that he brought the tribulation on them in the first place. Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes, it is a blessing that we would be persecuted. How often do you think of persecution as a blessing? It's something to endure. It's something that we try to have our faith stand strong through, but rarely do we say, God, I am blessed because my savings account is now empty. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know, right? It's a speculation, but I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate. We are more than just conquering these things. The last thing I want to do is read to you from the book of Acts. Chapter 7. <coughs> Stephen is arrested. We're not going to read the whole speech here. But he gives, essentially, the history of Israel to the Jews in the Sanhedrin. And they're not, they're not having it. They don't like that. Right? How dare you? How dare you come to us and tell us all the things that God has done? And so he does this, right? And he talks about, the God, about God's covenants. And those who are there are pretty upset. So look in verse 54, Acts 7, 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. <coughs> and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I don't necessarily know how to define what it means to be more than a conqueror, but that seems to be it, right? Stephen is facing his death for following after Jesus, for speaking the truth. And Saul, before he is Paul, before he has been grabbed a hold of by Christ, is there directing men to murder him in the street. And what does he do? He prays to God and he asks that they would be forgiven for the sin that they're committing against him. That's more than a conqueror. That's, Stephen could have been like, you know what? I don't deserve this. And I don't care what happens to any of you. You're unrightfully, unjustly murdering me. He could have spoken a curse upon them all. But he was more than a conqueror. Ask for their forgiveness. That's my challenge for you this morning. God has given us all of these promises. 
Right? All of these things that God has said, these are the things that I will do to you, for you. And he says he gives us all of these things. And in the midst of it, we suffer. In the midst of it, there are trials and there are tribulations. My challenge to you is to be more than a conqueror in the midst of all of that. In the face of death and suffering and trials, that you would more than conquer it. That you wouldn't just be like, well, I'm still going to serve you even in all of this. But that you would have smile on your face. That joy in your heart, even when your life is crumbling down around you, that you would know that God is standing with you. He will never forsake you. He loves you. And he has given you the strength and the ability to do more than just conquer the suffering in your life, but that you can be filled with the Spirit even in the midst of all of that. I know it's hard. I, I struggle with it. I suffer with it too. That's the challenge for us all this morning, that this would be our goal in the midst of those things, that we would be more than conquerors. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for Christ and we are so grateful for the many blessings that you have given to us. Father, help us to understand that our life is not our own. The things that happen to us on a day-to-day basis, the number of days we have, the way in which we pass from this world to the next, Lord, none of these things are in our control. You have set a plan in place for each of us. Lord, help us to praise your name, no matter what comes against us. Father, we love you, and we know that our suffering is nothing compared to the suffering that Christ endured here on earth and on the cross. Lord, help us to remember that in those times of trial, you are there with us, you stand beside us, you love us, you have not forsaken us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things.